We've been working through this series called God Never Said That. Two weeks ago, we addressed the false idea that uh, above all else, God wants you to be happy. And then last week, Larry shared about the false idea that, that God will never give you more than you can handle. Those, those are pretty common. And here's the thing. It's possible or even probable that as we go through these, as we go through these four weeks, you could say, well, I never actually said that I believe that. I never actually said those words out loud. Those aren't necessarily things we say. But those misbeliefs, if you will, and these ones that we're talking about today and next week, they're more likely to show up in the way that we live, in the way that we interact with one another, and maybe most importantly, in the way that we relate to and think about God. Now, all of these are dangerous misbeliefs. They're all trouble. They all lead to to further issues if you fall into the trap of believing that any of these are true. But today's, honestly, is particularly troubling. As you can tell from the video, today we're going to talk about the misbelief that it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anyone. We're going to talk about sin. Here's the thing. Culturally, it is way, way, way wrong today to call someone on their sin, to point it out. If you do, if you point out sin in someone else, you're judgmental and that's just wrong. In our culture, being judgmental is one of the worst things you can do, maybe the worst in the eyes of some. I read about a guy, and I really wish I could remember his name, but I'll never forget reading his story. He was in a situation where he found himself often speaking to large groups of students on college campuses all over the country. And in that situation, he had the opportunity, uh, he'd been doing this for years, he had the opportunity to ask students their favorite or their most well-known Bible verse. And 10 or 15 years ago, and you might be able to imagine this to be the case, without fail, the most common answer he got in these settings was John 3.16. People, they would say, oh yeah, we know John 3.16, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That may have been the answer you would give. If somebody asked you what your favorite verse was or what the most well-known Bible verse was. But if you ask that question to a bunch of college students today, what this guy said, the answer he gets most now is is Matthew 7, 1, which you can see on the screen there. You may not have known this one off the top of your head. It says, do not judge others or you, and you will not be judged. So what he's telling us when he tells this story is that the verse at the core of what God did for us by sending Jesus to save us John 3.16 used to be the most well-known verse. It was really about what God had done for us. That's what people knew. That verse that that we kind of base our entire belief system on, that that Jesus died for us. But that now, the most well-known verse among young people is one that when taken out of context all by itself, which is exactly what they're doing here, means to a lot of them that if I don't point out your sins and you don't point out my sins, nobody ever has to feel guilty and we're all feeling much better about ourselves. John 3.16 is about what God did for us. Matthew 7.1, we kind of make that a, ooh, I feel better now kind of verse. When it comes to sin, culture at least, it's, it's better just to not point it out, to just not say anything. So many people just, just want to say, I'll believe what I believe and you believe what you believe, and it really doesn't matter. And along with that, this idea that I can do whatever I want, and if it doesn't hurt anybody else, then it's really no one's business. And even if it does, you know, it's what's best for me. And, and so it's still nobody's business. That, that's the natural belief that comes out of that. And unfortunately, some of that has infiltrated the church. 
We've actually talked about this a couple times in the last few months, and and I'm not going to apologize for bringing it up because it's important. We are not called to coddle one another. We are called to encourage one another, absolutely, to look out for one another for sure. And yes, we are also called to lovingly correct one another when necessary. In Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, it says this, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other, Every day, while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. What I read in those verses that we are called to support one another in this. It's not my job to judge you, and it's not your job to judge me, but supporting and encouraging one another is not always just flowers and smiles and high fives. Sometimes it's loving and caring about someone enough to point out something that needs to change to better equip them to follow Jesus. Sometimes it's believing that someone loves and cares about you that much and therefore being open to someone challenging you in that same way. Again, this is the difference between what culture says and what God calls us to. It's a big difference. I read this actually on Twitter this week, and again, I'm not sure who to credit this to, but they deserve a ton of credit because this is is good stuff. I read this. If you rely on society to define your beliefs, You'll always be redefining your beliefs because society is always changing. Now that, that's deep. I mean, that absolutely hits the nail on the head. And here's the thing. Too many people today are absolutely doing what that says. They're relying on society to define their beliefs, which results in the necessity of redefining what they believe every time society shifts. Now, here's my question. How deep is your commitment to what you believe if it's regularly or even constantly shifting? How deep are your convictions if they have to change all the time? And yet God is unchanging. His word is unchanging, and the things that he calls us to have not changed. You cannot base what you believe on both God's word and society. One has to influence the other. Either you base what you believe on God's word and it influences how you interact with society, or you base what you believe on society and it influences how you interact with God's word. The first is correct. The second is dangerous. And so today I want us to dive into the reality of what we can learn uh, from God's word about our behavior. And to begin that dive, I want you to think back to the time of Jesus when he lived and what the, the biggest cultural value of that time might have been. If you read through the New Testament, if you read through the life of Jesus, you get all these clues that point to this. I can't 100% prove this, but I believe this is it. That the biggest cultural value in Jesus' day was justice. You think about phrases you find in Scripture like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you did something wrong, you deserve to be punished. And more specifically, the punishment needed to be as harsh as the seriousness of the crime. True justice implies a balance there. And justice seemed to be of great importance. It comes up a lot. Now, if you take that same question, what's the greatest cultural value, and you ask it about today, the answer is different. One particular thing comes to mind, and it's likely that it came to your mind too. Today, culturally, the biggest value is tolerance. I believe that the biggest cultural value of our time is tolerance. Probably to a fault. There might be some others you could argue for, but I don't think you could argue against tolerance fitting that idea. And what's actually pretty interesting about that is that even the definition of tolerance has changed in a huge way over the last 10 years or so. Tolerance used to mean 
that all people have equal value. In other words, to be tolerant is to value people. Now that actually sounds nice. Today, though, tolerance has evolved to mean all ideas and all behavior have equal value, which means that today it is considered wrong and unacceptable to even point out that behavior is wrong, that something is in fact sinful. Culturally, we've even taken it a step further by, by watering down or sanitizing the terminology to describe what are actually sinful things. For instance, just a little white lie. Well, that, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? That makes it sound so innocent, but a lie is a lie. Or how about this one? Adult entertainment. It doesn't sound as harmful as it really is. Or how about adultery? That word's kind of strong. The word adultery is a little harsh. And so we say, well, somebody had a, had a fling. And it doesn't sound as bad. And I could go on and on, but culturally we have changed the language to help us feel better about things that are in fact sinful. It seems like today the only unpardonable sin is pointing out someone else's sin. Everything else is fair game. Again, what I'm doing, I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone. And if you point it out, well, who are you to point that out in me? Worry about yourself. And we... we we act that way. But what we need to recognize, or actually I think what we need to remember, because I, I believe most of us have a grip on this already, is that sin is very real, that sin has dramatic earthly consequences, and potentially destructive eternal consequences. And because of that, I want us to, to dive a little deeper again here and address three big cultural misbeliefs about sin and look at what God had to say about them. And so there are, there are three things, and there are more than these, but there are three of these things I want to talk about uh, today that culture would say, this is something you need to embrace. The first one is this, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. It's possible you said this about yourself. It's possible you said this in defense of another person. I have absolutely said this. When someone gets you know, in trouble, when someone maybe gets arrested for a crime, uh, we, we often hear someone who knows them say this particular phrase, they're not a bad person, they just made a mistake. And I, I, don't, I don't doubt that that's probably the case. But, but here's the problem with the statement, well, I'm not a bad person. It's supposed to make us feel better about ourselves or about someone else. But from God's perspective, it's not fully true. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, says this, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. In other words, if we say, well, I'm not a bad person, we begin to deceive ourselves. Now you might say, well, Craig, just because I say I'm not a bad person doesn't mean that I think I'm sinless, and that's valid, that's fair. But here's the problem. When we say I'm not a bad person, it's a way to let ourselves off the hook, at least a little bit, for the sin that is absolutely a part of who we are, for a sin that we committed. And the thing is, we'll always be able to find someone who is worse than us, and that'll take us off the hook even a little bit more, and we'll say, see, I'm, I'm obviously not a bad person because this person's better. But the more we convince ourselves that we're not that bad, the less we realize our need for a Savior. And that's dangerous thinking. Other people are not the standard we're supposed to look at. When we compare ourselves to a holy and perfect God, the truth is we are horribly filthy sinners. There's an evangelist who uses this illustration, so, so hang with me. This isn't original to me. How many of you ever told a lie? Okay, just checking. You can look around, and if you need to call somebody a liar, feel free. We'll allow that in this moment. 
Only if you're willing to receive that title yourself, actually. Uh, how many of you have ever stolen something, even when you were a kid? Even if it was office supplies? Hands tend to go up when I say office supplies. I've, I've noticed that. <laughs> Feel free to look around and call everybody a thief. That's fine. How many of you have ever looked lustfully at someone, even if you were younger? I didn't say today. Hands don't go up as quickly on that one. They typically don't. And remember, what Jesus said is recorded in the New Testament, that even if you look lustfully at someone, you are committing adultery in your heart, so you can call each other adulterers. And you'll notice that my hand was up for all three, so you can throw those my way too. So we're in a room full of lying, thieving adulterers. (laughs) Welcome to New Life Christian Church, where we're here to make you feel better about yourself. Listen, we can have a little bit of lightheartedness here and still figure out the point. We're not good people. We are sinful at our core. Even the best among us will struggle in sin, and if we try to convince ourselves it's okay because we're good people, we're, we're letting ourselves off the hook. We're not accepting what's actually true. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says this, As the Scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. At our best, we are all still sinners. All of us. So we can tell ourselves we're not bad people, but we're sinners. If we ignore it, our need for Jesus becomes harder to see. That's not good. That's the first one. The second cultural misbelief here is that all sin is the same. Now, track with me because some of you will jump on this one right away and say, no, wait a minute, we've always, we've always talked about the fact that all sin is the same. You've been taught that, that's fine, I have too. In God's eyes, that's absolutely true. All unforgiven sin leads to eternal death. That's true. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin leads to death. All sin. Little sin, big sin, whatever sin. So, so in that way, yes, all sin is sin. But it's dangerous to believe that all sin is the same. Let me, let me phrase it this way. There are earthly consequences for how we live. If we are a blessing to other people while we walk this earth, they... Uh, will be more likely to in turn be a blessing to us. If we are sinful, there are consequences for that. There is something that comes back to us on that here on this earth. But those consequences are not all the same. For example, I'm the team pastor here at New Life. If I commit the sin of gluttony, which I'm quite sure that I have several times, I probably won't lose my job. But it will affect me negatively in a physical way. That, that's the consequence in that situation. But if I sell teenagers drugs, you can bet I'm going to lose my job. It's all sin, right? But there are different consequences. This shows up in Scripture, actually, that the severity of punishment, that the consequences are determined by the action. The Pharisees were so, we're so hard on the Pharisees, we say Pharisees and immediately we go, oh, yeah, those guys. Because we are, we're hard on them. They do a lot of things, as recorded in the Scripture, that are worthy of being hard on them for. And some of them in the scripture we'll read here in a second were doing something that just absolutely seems worse than anything else we read about them doing. They were taking advantage of widows. A group of people, scripture repeatedly tells them they're supposed to be taken care of. We read this in Luke chapter 20, verse 47. Yet they, they being the Pharisees, shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. Obviously, this was a big deal. And the punishment would be severe for such action. In fact, there are translations of Scripture 
where that, that last phrase there is, is this way, they will be punished most severely. To me, describing it as severe punishment implies that there are different levels of punishment, that there are different consequences. Jesus himself kind of backs that idea up. Uh, in John chapter 19, verse 11, he's speaking to Pontius Pilate after Jesus himself was arrested. And he said this about Judas, his disciple who had betrayed him, who had handed him over in the first place. In John chapter 19, verse 11, then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Implying there is a lesser sin and there is a greater sin. Again, all sin separates us from God, but there are different consequences. You know this. You've experienced this. Or, or even listen to what Paul says about sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And he says that there, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. That implies different consequences. Now listen, the bottom line for this idea is this. All sin is sin. All sin has consequences. All sin separates us from God. But if we carry the belief that all sin is the same to the place that a lot of us normally do, if we carry that through, it allows us to believe that the most egregious of our sins aren't as bad as they are. And once again, we're right back to feeling like we're not bad people and we're letting ourselves off the hook a little bit. You see, inherently, these aren't all necessarily all that bad. It's where our minds will go with them. That's the problem. And we're right back to believing we're not bad people and we're right back to, to, to not realizing how much we need a Savior. We let ourselves off the hook. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting we need to be super hard on ourselves. But we also need to not deceive ourselves. The third one is this. Since I've already done it, I might as well keep doing it. Which sounds like flawed thinking, except if we think hard enough, we've probably all justified ourselves with this one at some point. And this is not a new misbelief. It must have been a, an issue in Paul's day because he wrote about it in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And he asks this kind of hypothetical question. There's a small amount of logic to Paul's question here. More sin means more grace, and I want more grace, so I better sin more. Right? There's some logic there. And it's worth it. And there we go again, justifying our sin, because we're saying, well, I'm, I'm not really sinning for sin's sake. I'm sinning to seek grace. And aren't we supposed to be seeking grace? That's not how it works. And Paul actually continues in verse 2. He says this, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? In other words, because of Jesus, because of what he did for us, our sin no longer has power over us. It's still there. It still pops its head up. We'll still struggle. But our sin isn't in charge anymore, and the power of Christ is in us. Things have changed. And if things have changed in that way, why would we go back to that which hurts the heart of God? Why would we go back to that which hurts our own lives? Why would we go back to that which has the potential to hurt people around us? Should we keep sinning because God's going to forgive us anyway? It's tempting. But you and I both know that's not the answer. God has something so much better for us. So often around churches... 
you hear people say things like, I think we just need to go deeper. I think I just, I think I just need to be challenged. I just, you know, things are kind of on a shallow level. I need to go deeper. I need to be challenged. I want to get deeper with God. And that, that's great. If you've said that, I'm not judging you. But understand this. Spiritual maturity is not about how much we know. It's about how much we obey. If you love Jesus, the response is not to learn as much about him in the Bible as possible. Now, it's good to learn as much as you can about Jesus. It's good to be in the Scriptures. But the response, if we know Jesus and we love Jesus, is to obey. Jesus said, follow me. Let the Holy Spirit transform you. And if we do that, what shows up in our lives is good fruit. It shows up in our lives in positive ways. But what's happened, and I've heard it phrased this way, and it makes so much sense, what has happened is that most Christians in our culture today are educated way beyond their level of obedience. We know the right things. We can quote the right scripture. But it doesn't always show up in our lives. Most of us don't need to know more. We need to apply what we know. We need to live out what we've learned. We need to let God's truth settle into our lives and influence us. And when we do that, it has the power to set us free from the sins that continue to mess us up and hold us back. So if we say, I've already done it, I might as well keep doing it, if that's our thought process here, we're missing an opportunity for freedom, and we're missing a call to freedom. I know we talked about not continuing to sin in order to get more grace, but we also should not ignore the fact that that forgiveness and grace really are there for us at all times. Yet the moment to kick us into the curve is right now, not down the line somewhere. If we hold too tightly to the sin, we're ignoring the chance for freedom. Pastor Craig Rochelle said it this way, and I believe he's right on the money here. So I wanted you to hear this. He said, the most miserable person is not a non-Christian. The most miserable people in the world are Christians who continue to live in sin. The most miserable people in the world are Christians who know that freedom is available to them, who know the standard and intentionally disobey God. The most miserable people are those who know there is something better and continue to reject the will, the way, and the purpose of God. And the truth is we so often see people that are far from God and we say, oh, those poor people, but we're not as close to Him as we should be. And here's the thing, the closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to the light, the more you recognize how much darkness there is in your life. Now the goal is not for us to go around feeling guilty, the goal is not for us to walk around feeling horrible for the things that we've done, but we also cannot minimize the impact of sin. If we ignore it, it's probably going to gain a stronger foothold. It's real, it's damaging, and it needs dealt with. We have to acknowledge that sin is real and that it's a problem. When we lived in Ohio, I had a, I had a mini fridge in my office. Um, I don't really know why I put the mini fridge in my office. I'd keep waters or sodas and stuff in there. and I had a couch too, so maybe it was an extension of like college dorm room life. It was my first office, so I thought I need a fridge. Um, but at some point I had told my, my middle school Sunday school teacher that if he ever needed to store something in my refrigerator... Feel free. It was, it was the closest refrigerator of any kind to, to that part of the building. I said, if you need to throw something in there, don't worry about it. You know, go for it. And one particular Sunday, he had milk and donuts for his class, and they didn't drink all the milk. We stuck it in the fridge. He didn't tell me. And I don't know what it was at that point. I wasn't using the fridge very much, and so I didn't notice that the milk was there until it was past its expiration date. 
And I could have taken it out at that point, but I thought, well, I don't want to just throw it in the kitchen trash. I should probably take it all the way out to the dumpster, and man, that's really far away. So I said, I'll get it some other time, and I left the milk in the fridge for a long time. <laughs> and it was fine. It was fine. It didn't matter because it was expired, so it wasn't worth anything. I wasn't going to drink it. And so it wasn't hurting anything just staying in the fridge until it exploded all over the inside of the fridge. Yeah, you don't know spoiled milk until it's so bad that it expands the jug to the point of bursting and all that nastiness, you know, caused to expand it in the first place. All that nastiness is all over the inside of that fridge. I, uh, I had somebody after first service come up and tell me they had that happen once with a glass jug of apple cider um, that they left on a shelf and it, it pressurized itself to the point of exploding. The, the truth is we treat sin that way. We don't always notice that it's there. Even when we do, sometimes we ignore it or we say, ah, it's, it's not, not worth dealing with right now. It's not hurting anybody right now. And we just leave it because it's not hurting anything. But eventually it explodes and things get messy. Earlier we read 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 about how we fool ourselves if we claim we have no sin. I want to read that again, but I want to keep reading. In verse 8, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. We read that. And he goes on to say this, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. One of the worst things that we can do, absolutely one of the worst things that we can do is ignore our sins or justify our sins. And a lot of us are guilty of doing one or both of those things on a regular basis. What we're called to do is to deal with them. And here's the beautiful part. I can say that we're called to deal with our sins. Here's the beautiful part of this, the most important thing I'm going to say today. The real dealing with them was handled by Jesus on the cross. That was the most important part of this process. We're not called to save ourselves from our own sin. We're not, we're not called to own our own, overcome all our sins. We're not called to pay the price for our own sins. That's good because we couldn't do it. Jesus already took care of that on the cross. We are called to acknowledge that there is sin in us, to flee from those sins, and to run to the Savior who took care of the hard work, who did the hard part, who died for our sins. Let's pray. God, so often we are guilty of coming into this place on Sunday and coming to a time of communion and that being really the only time during any given week that we think about exactly what it is you did for us when you sent Jesus to this earth to die on the cross for us. And God, while I'm thankful for that time every single week, I pray that that wouldn't be a thought that we just tuck into the back of our mind when we're done with communion and, and go on with our week, but that it would be at the forefront of our mind and that it would be the inspiration for how we live. Because when you did that, when you sent Jesus to die for our sins, you, you took care of something we couldn't take care of on our own. You saved us when we couldn't save ourselves. You paid a price we could never pay. Who are we to just set that aside in the back of our mind? So I pray that that would drive us each and every day to better serve you. God, as we move into this time of communion, I pray that you would help us to focus on that. In Jesus' name I pray.